The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 30, The Santa Cruz Islands. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Now, welcome back to the show. If you're a new listener, please feel free to check out our website. We've got the sources there that we use to create the various episodes for this season, as well as some maps that will help you understand what's going on. You can also sign up for show updates via email when you head over to the website, so check that out as well. Now, if you're enjoying the content and you would like to assist, there are several ways to do so. Every time you shop on Amazon, just enter via one of the linked sources on the website. If you do that, we'll get a little kickback from Amazon, and it costs you nothing. So thank you ahead of time for doing that. Um, If you aren't into that, or maybe you want to get something back for your support, you can head over to Patreon and sign up there. For as little as $10 a month, you'll get access to our bonus content, which includes several bonus shows that are available only there. And those are right now Quagmire, the story of the American involvement in the Middle East, and the War on Terrorism. And then there's um, 1983, the year the world almost ended, which we finished a few months back, and now we've got our newest one on colonial American history. Um, I've lost count, but I'd say it's probably something like 40 hours of extra content. So just go over to patreon.com forward slash American History, and in a matter of moments, you'll have access to a ton of stuff for as little as $10 a month. All right, so before we go on, let me just give you a bit of a show update. Um, If you haven't noticed, uh, but I'm sure you have, the episodes have not come out as frequently as they once were. Now, there are several reasons for this. First is that um, this is my first year back to teaching American history. And here in Texas, this subject has a state test attached to it at the end of the course. Now, I'm not one to worry about that sort of thing, um, as I usually teach at a level that requires much more thinking than that silly exam. However, on the other hand, it's been over six years since I've taught U.S. history, and while history hasn't changed, um, but there's things that have changed about it, um, the way it's taught and whatnot. But um, these kids lost about two years of education as well, so let's just say I've been a little stressed out. Um, A second reason for the episode slowing down to a trickle is the personal tragedy of my mom passing away back in October. Now, it wasn't unexpected, but it has taken something out of me, and I've found it a bit difficult to jump back into the saddle. Every time I feel like I'm ready to go, um, I find out, no, I'm not really. Hopefully, I've turned the corner on this, and I can start producing episodes more regularly, but I thought you should know about that. Now, finally, the fact is that I've also hit a bit of a wall with regard to research and writing. Um, This particular episode, which would normally have taken me a couple of days maybe in the past to produce, um, yet it's been one that's taken me almost two months to do so. So for the foreseeable future, I'd expect to see maybe an episode a month, maybe once every six weeks, give or take. Um, Now, come May, I might hit some inspiration and maybe be able to build up a bit of a backlog. The reason I say that is there's just something about April and May that usually finds me traditionally um, writing up a storm, and I don't know why, but if it does happen again, then great. Um, But I'm just hopeful that for the next six months or so, I will be able to give you one episode a month, give or take on average. All right, so last time, we finally finished up our discussion of Guadalcanal. 
Um, I think I might have beat a dead horse a bit and dragged it out too long, but hopefully you found it as interesting as I did. Now, today we're going to try and move the narrative forward a little bit and discuss the naval engagement known as the Battle of Santa Cruz Islands, but also kind of prepare ourselves for the naval back battle um, around Guadalcanal that takes place in November 1942. With that being said, we need to jump into our time machine and head back once again to the fall of 1942. To help us do that, we've got our song of the week. And this week, it's a song called Bring Back My Blushing Rose by John Steele, and it comes to us courtesy of the Free Music Archive. We'll see you in a few minutes. So for this episode, I'd like to spend some time discussing Japan in the fall of 1942. Okay, so let's start off with the emperor. Now, if you remember from the episodes we did on Japan and the emperor back, ooh, that was probably like around episodes four or five, something like that of this season, we mentioned the fact that he was not really in control. He was very much a figurehead, but whenever he had a decision to make, if there was one to make, he went along with whatever his advisors suggested. He was basically a puppet. Now, by the fall of 1942, the country that he presided over was in transition. This was mainly evident in Tokyo, where the old Japan collided with the new. You had men in modern three-piece suits walking next to women wearing the traditional Japanese kimono. Billboards and neon signs existed next to hanging lanterns and banners on wooden poles. Now, many, if not most, Japanese people lived in small wooden homes, crammed into crowded neighborhoods that were separated by cobblestone streets. This will be important when we get to 1945. Now, the emperor himself had rarely been seen in public since his coronation. However, now during the early um, stages of the war, he was not only allowed to have a more public profile, but actually he was needed. Um, The fact is that by October, the war had started to turn. 
Thus, on October 15th, he led a ceremony honoring over 15,000 fallen soldiers at the Yasukuni Shrine. Over 30,000 people were in attendance. Now, as far as the people were aware, the war was still going great. The radio and print media were controlled by the state, and they were constantly trumpeting not only about victories on the battlefield or at sea, but they continually continued, I should say, to vilify the enemy. One journal rained scorn on the Americans and their slogan, Remember Pearl Harbor, noting that they, the Japanese, would do just that. General Hideki Tojo claimed that Japan, with her vast empire, could now destroy the Americans and their British allies anywhere in the world. And Admiral Nomura, who had once been the ambassador to Washington, said that all Japan had to do was hold out, and the Americans and British would eventually drive the warmongers, and that was a reference to Roosevelt and Churchill, from office. It appeared the Japanese still supported the war as ardently as they had in the spring. However, the people realized that, while for this generation of Japanese, war seemed to be a constant presence, this one was different. This one was total war, and it would end with total victory or total defeat. While they could not fathom the death toll the war would exact in the last two years of the war, the, f- the number of dead was rising um, already at an alarming rate. The reality is, the evidence that the war was no longer going so well could not be concealed forever. Soldiers and sailors matriculating into the mainland from the front, either because they were on leave or they were wounded, began to whisper of a war that was not going quite the way the media said it was. Furthermore, you had the draft. And as it started to take more and more men away and crept further up and down the age scale, well, it was obvious things weren't going as well as the government said they were. And not everyone believed the propaganda. Remember that Japanese ace pilot who miraculously survived his encounter over Guadalcanal a few episodes back? His name was Saburo Saki. He returned to Japan, and he was shocked by the blatant lies being told to the people, as well as the martial music that was constantly blared over loudspeakers. He knew the truth. His mother, of all people, asked him if they were really winning. He couldn't answer her directly, and simply said they had to win, for the alternative was too hard to even consider. With that being said, let us discuss Yamamoto. Historian Ian Toll does a remarkable job discussing the Admiral, so I'm relying on his work here. Isoroku Yamamoto is, of course, famous here in the West for the surprise raid on Pearl Harbor, as well as the catastrophic defeat at Midway. But, as Toll notes, his legacy in Japan isn't quite so binary. He uses the word multifaceted to describe him and how the Admiral is remembered. However one looks at him, he was a man of his time. He lived in a sumptuous suite on board the battleship uh, Yamato. He did not work particularly hard, often playing shogi with his staff officers. He dined on fine china, and his meals were prepared by chefs with the finest ingredients, often flown in from Japan. Before one condemns him, though, um, let me just say this was the custom of the Japanese Navy, and he was just continuing to follow what was expected of a man in his position. Politically, he had opposed the rise of the militants on the right. He held nothing but contempt for the army, who, if you remember, had played a part in the rise of the right. Furthermore, he was one of only a few Japanese soldiers or officers um, who'd been brave enough to oppose the war with the United States. While Pearl Harbor was a spectacular success, it was midway that left a mark on him for what was the rest of his life. He grew gloomy and detached, resigned to fate. Japan now found itself in the exact type of war he had warned about, 
a war of attrition with the largest industrial power on Earth. Even if he never said it, surely by mid to late 1942, he was aware that Japan was headed towards a defeat of biblical proportions. At the same time, it was his duty to continue to fight against his enemies um, and the enemies of his nation, and he would do so until the end, no matter how bitter it might be. And one might be surprised to find there were grumblings amongst some in the Navy about Admiral Yamamoto and the fact that his flagship had long layovers in port. The same was said about the Musashi. These two massive battleships were the largest in the world at that time, displacing 70,000 tons, and they were armed with nine 18-inch guns, the largest naval guns in the world. They'd cost a king's ransom to construct, and many in the Navy thought they were key to winning the war. These men were, of course, adhering to the theories of Alfred Thayer Mahan. They believed in a traditional naval duel, and they wanted to engage the Americans with these behemoths. Instead, they seemed to be avoiding the fight. Yamato was derisively called Hotel Yamato. <laughs> Here's a quote from one officer. Quote, we were always being sent to the very front lines, and those battleships never even went into battle. People like us were shipped off to the most forward positions, while those bastards from the Imperial Naval Academy sat around on their asses in the Yamato and Musashi hotels, end quote. Now, by mid-October, the Japanese Navy was ready to fight again. On October 11th, Admirals Yamamoto and um, Ugaki both watched as a massive fleet headed out to sea through Truck's North Channel. The task force included four carriers, four battleships, 10 cruisers, and 30 destroyers. The plan called for the carriers to head north and then hang back until the airfield at Guadalcanal was captured. They then had to race south and destroy the American Navy units in the area. While the Japanese were facing issues, the American military had issues of its own. Vice Admiral Robert Gormley was commander of South Pacific Area at that time, and he was not popular with either Admiral Ernest King or Chester Nimitz. Now first, he never bought into the uh, Watchtower Offensive, something that we have mentioned in one of the previous episodes. Secondly, because he didn't really believe in the offensive, he was constantly requesting reinforcements that he knew the military did not have. Third, and perhaps most importantly, he failed to appear in person at major command summits, especially the one that took place on board Saratoga prior to Guadalcanal. Heck, he'd never even set foot on the canal, unlike Admirals McCain, Turner, Harmon, even Admiral Chester Nimitz himself. It doesn't speak highly of the naval theater commander to not show up on the island that his forces are trying to take. Now, by early October, Nimitz was aware he was going to have to fire Gormley and replace him. Even if they were old friends, and they were, the reality was he was simply not up to the task at hand. What, was, what he needed was a bulldog, someone who could take the fight to the enemy and whom the sailors would love. But how to do this, and who would be the replacement? Gormley provided Nimitz with the excuse when, on October 15th, he sent a dispatch to Hawaii complaining about the, quote, totally inadequate, end quote, forces available to him. Nimitz sent a dispatch to King, asking to have Gormley relieved of duty and replaced by none other than Admiral William Bull Halsey. King simply replied, approved. Halsey, who was overnighting at that point on uh, Canton Island, received word to proceed directly to uh, Numia, where Com Sopak was located. When he arrived, he was met by the flag lieutenant, who handed him a sealed envelope. Inside it was another envelope, marked secret. It ordered Halsey to relieve Gormley as Com Sopak immediately. His response was, quote, Jesus Christ and General Jackson, 
This is the hottest potato they've ever handed me, end quote. Now, it was apparent to the Americans that the Japanese were preparing for a naval offensive in the region. Komsopak expected the Japanese force to have at least two carriers, or as many as four. Four battleships were also likely to be a part of the fleet. As for the Americans, Halsey had two carrier task forces based on the Hornet and the Enterprise. Now, these two groups were combined into one large force, known as Task Force 61, commanded by Admiral Thomas Kincaid. It also consisted of a battleship, the South Dakota, six cruisers, and 14 destroyers. It was basically about half the size of the Japanese fleet that was about to pounce on them from the north. Halsey, in a move that was perhaps why Nimitz wanted him for the job, decided to roll the dice. He threw everything he had into it and ordered Kincaid to head north of the Santa Cruz Islands and find the enemy. Now, this engagement unfolded in much the same pattern as had Midway and the Eastern Solomons. The Americans ended up losing the Hornet in this battle, and again, Enterprise took heavy damage. And as in the previous two battles, the Japanese had two carriers knocked out of action, although they were not sent to the bottom of the sea this time. The Japanese, harassed by land-based American aircraft, decided to withdraw from the area. This was prudent since they were um, aware that their attempt to take Guadalcanal had now failed. And, just as before, the Japanese believed they had been far more successful than they were. Admiral Nagumo reported to Yamamoto that four American carriers were sunk, while the commander of Cruiser Division 8 reported three were destroyed. This, the fourth carrier engagement of the war, was the last until June 1944, when the two enemies met again in the Battle of the Philippine Sea. The Japanese press duly reported another victory by the Imperial Japanese Navy, and the public did their part and cheered. However, senior naval commanders privately acknowledged that, at best, this was a Pyrrhic victory. They all realized that this slugfest with the Americans was wearing down their ships and their manpower. Admiral Nagumo himself stated, quote, Considering the great superiority of our enemy's industrial capacity, we must win every battle overwhelmingly. This last one, unfortunately, was not an overwhelming victory, end quote. Another piece of evidence that the Japanese were aware this was nothing close to victory, and the fact that Nagumo was relieved of command and sent back to Japan speaks volumes. If they had won, why relieve him of his station? Okay, so that's all for this episode. I'm sh sorry, this one's a little bit short, um, but in our next installment, we'll, we'll take a look at the naval aspect of Guadalcanal. Until then, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Season 4, Episode 30 of the American History Podcast, and I look forward to seeing you all real soon. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.